He won Journalist of the Year from the American Conservative Union at CPAC 2015. You like me right now. You like me. He's National Review Online's Jim Garrett. How do you like me now? She's a front-page contributor to Red State and a broadcast professional who calls life the way she sees it. Yeah! Crank up the radio! Very interesting! She's Mickey White. How do you like me now? This is the Jim and Mickey Show. Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show, brought to you by Coca-Cola, the soda that doesn't want you to stay woke. Some other colas might be trying to raise your social consciousness along with your blood sugar, but at Coca-Cola... We don't care. We're never going to make some commercial featuring some kind of sort of lefty protest in a Kardashian, unlike some soft drinks we could mention. Coca-Cola. You don't have to stay woke. In fact, you can take a nap, although you'll probably want our decaffeinated sodas in that case. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White, and welcome to the early April edition of the Jim and Mickey Show. Say, Mickey, do you have any soft drinks in front of you at this moment? You know, Jim, I was just about to ask you if you'd like to have a woke and a smile. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as listeners no doubt can gather, uh, shortly before we began taping, the utterly, utterly, ridiculously awful uh, Pepsi commercial debuted featuring Kendall Jenner and kind of, sort of, Black Lives Matter, kind of, sort of, protest. Yeah, okay. All right. Tell me what you think, Mickey. Here's my problem. Um, as you guys know or have known by now, um, Kendall Jenner has a new ad out with Pepsi where she is in the middle of a photo shoot and there's a protest going on outside. There's all this flash to a man playing a cello on top of an empty building to a skyscraper, right? I mean, this yeah. is, you know, one of the highest po- points in the building. It's Fiddler on the Roof. It's, it's where the streets have no name, um, as someone told you this morning. I saw that, and I thought, yes, that's exactly what we're encapsulating here. That imagery, the idea of the free spirits throughout the city, right? We've got the model. We've got the photographer sitting in her studio taking pictures. She happens, we believe, to be a Muslim woman, but we're not sure because she does have the hijab on. But, what, but again, you know, we don't know for sure. Maybe it's just a scarf. And she's got her photos, and she's very unhappy with them. She's a very angry woman. She's very angry. She pushes all of her photos off. She's very angry with what I think is her own work, by the way. That is correct. (laughs) She's not criticizing somebody else. She seems very disappointed in herself. And I feel like she really needs therapy more than a a protest. Well, I think the idea of it is, okay, so everyone's there and everyone ends up joining the protest. And as Kendall rips off her blonde wig and marches out into the streets to march through the protests of the varied a varied degree of protesters that are all millennials. Where in the real world, ripping off her wig would result in a bunch of people going, who's that? I don't recognize her. <laughs> uh, see, I feel like more people had trouble with her being a blonde, but that's just me. Um, having said that, she goes into the crowd, and she walks up to the officer, and she hands them a Pepsi. Now, there have been some comparisons made to the fact that there was a Black Lives Matter protest where a woman approached the police officer, and I don't know, she handed him something. Um, as some type of you know imagery of peace. Think of this as the daisies in the end of the shotgun rifle mm. type moment. Um, that's the imagery that is portrayed. However, if you take a closer look at the actual protest itself, we're not really sure what they're protesting. Um, you know, there was a lot of discussion about whether it being a Black Lives Matter or police brutality. But do remember, this is 2017. People protest everything. Literally 
Everything. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. One of the reasons I think people are scoffing so loudly at this is that this protest looks like no protest we've ever seen because it's got a lot of peace signs, but there's nothing indicating a direct opposition to a war. One of the few signs that we can understand says, join the conversation. Mickey, Dave, have you ever seen a protest in which one of the signs and one of the rallying cries is, join the conversation, join the conversation. Again, it is so watered down for the purpose of this ad. You have to understand that Pepsi's target audience in this particular case is probably people ages 8 to 18. You're looking at a very young demographic because keep in mind, Pepsi's number one problem in life is Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola owns the market. Pepsi has always been number two. The only way for them to even maintain their market share, let alone gain market share, is to go after the young users because Americans choose their sodas in their teens. Once they've decided they're either Coke or Pepsi, that's it for life. They don't switch after that. And Pepsi Um, is still stinging from, I'd like to teach the world to sing sing with me. The ultimate peaceful, no gripe protest commercial from like 1969, right? Also one of the worst ads to ever grace. True, but it's stuck in my head. It sticks in everyone's head. Again, like this Pepsi ad, as I have been saying to people, if you're talking about it, the ad worked. No, 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 no. And wait, stay with me. Because this is not even new for Pepsi. This is not new. Controversy is how they have made their name throughout the years. One of the shows I'm watching right now is Feud, and it features the competition between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and specifically their work on the, on the movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And Joan Crawford married a PepsiCo executive back in the day and used to walk around promoting their products at everything she did and was holding a Pepsi, you know, which was probably filled with vodka, but whatever. <laughs> Um, Pepsi has always been struggling to get this market share. And you guys aren't young enough that you don't remember the Madonna ad in, I believe it was the late 80s when she did the Like a Prayer video. It ran in the Super Bowl and they had the black Jesus figure and people lost their minds. So controversy is something that Pepsi has made their brand on. Keep in mind their old slogan was what, guys? The choice of a new generation. Mm -hmm. So the idea that now they are, you know, trying to make themselves the official soda of protest movement of millennials is not really that far of a stretch. Oh, I, I, here's where I think this is going to blow up in their faces is because, look, here we have a demographic. And clearly it's not all millennials, but, you know, we have a subsection of a younger generation that is frequently upset, frequently angry, and easily offended by everything. And lo and behold, you put this ad to say, hey, we're the soda for you guys. And they respond by getting upset by getting angry and being easily offended. Um, I, I don't understand why someone would try to market to this because it's never going to work. They're going to hate you no matter what you do. Um, I, I also think, like, I'll give the, the angry protesters a little bit of credit. This, somebody said that the, everything we see in this commercial, it looks like a stock photo protest. Right? <laughs> like, everything is just, just oh, absolutely. generic. You know, like from some kind of PR agency that, that was called and asked to make a, a contractual obligation to provide photos of protests, right? They're all glossy and, and gleaming, and the people are all good-looking. 
They're very clean processors, too. <laughs> I just thought I'd add that. Like, it's not just, I'd like to drink the world, of, I'd like to buy the world a Coke, had everybody singing and dancing happily on this hillside with their bottles of Coca-Cola. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. It's the real thing. And yeah, that's implausible. But I guess it felt good enough that everybody kind of nodded and went along with it. And, you know, it was the 70s. Everybody was probably high anyway. Um, but this one, I, I, just, I never believe Kendall Jenner will ever do a photo shoot in a storefront with no security around her <laughs> as a protest walks by outside. I never believe she's going to make eye contact with the cello player. And because of the nod of his head, she'll be stirred to action to throw off her blonde wig and join the protesters. I'll never believe the protesters will greet Kendall Jenner as one of their own. I'll, I'll never believe that they'll be okay with her marching to the front of the protest and deciding that she leads them. Although, I'll give them a little bit of credit. If you're going to have a confrontation with police, send out the hot supermodel celebrity first. <laughs> because they're not going to pepper spray her and they're not going to beat her with a baton. Okay, that's probably... Good, good job, pro- generic protesters. I give you credit for that move. Well, and I think the other part of the commercial that has been um, mostly ignored is that I'd like to know what the cop says to his friend who's standing beside him. She was hotter as a blonde. (laughs) I'm I'm wondering exactly what it is that the cop says to his friend as she walks away. Maybe no. Some variation of, you know... That's a movement I could get behind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, now, it's a silly ad. It's an ad for a soda company. Pepsi has already released a statement saying that the the purpose of the ad was to bring people together and to show that they represent all people. And, again, I found it interesting. It, It was almost the Rorschach test of soda ads to me in the sense that depending on where you stood politically, apparently jaded your view of this entire ad because I need to tell you guys, I watched it the minute Kendall tweeted it out, and I'm so lame, I didn't even realize it was controversial. Wow. You're lame, Mickey. I know. (laughs) I'm really lame because I watched it, and I'm like, okay, Kendall got a Pepsi ad. Good for her. All right. I'm going to have a surprising reaction. It actually made me sympathetic to the upset protesters. Um, because the, the image of the world is it, basically the message of the ad is, boy, if we just handed out Pepsis, everybody would get along. Pepsi brings us all together. We really wouldn't have, and you know, the people who are imagining, you know, um, Rodney King handing the cops a Pepsi <laughs> so he doesn't get beaten by the LAPD. It's kind of a, it's kind of a dismissal of the seriousness of the grievance of the protesters, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It trivializes these things. Yes. It, you know, at least you know, I like to give the world a Coke. You know, I wasn't saying we could end the Vietnam War if we just gave the North Vietnamese Coca-Cola, right? I mean, you know, th- th- there was kind now, of... A- as someone who was raised in a Pepsi house, my mom was a strictly Pepsi fan... I would have to put out there that there are probably people who believe that Pepsi could solve all the world's problems. Um, I, I was someone who actually went to the home of Pepsi in New Bern, North Carolina, uh, the little pharmacy where it was created called Brad's Drink back in the 1800s. And if you saw that tiny little pharmacy and saw where it is today, I would say that Pepsi's winning regardless. I'd say Coca-Cola has the power to stop protests. The old Coca-Cola with cocaine in it. 
<laughs> I want to go back to original formula. Right. I'm saying that cocaine. Now, in the how many times have you heard is a good idea? Now people have requested Mexican Coke because it's still made with sugar instead of corn syrup. <laughs> Apparently, it's sweeter, and people who really enjoy it often will request it. We'll seek it out. We'll go to supermarkets that have it. So here's a real question. Is Mexican Coke taking away jobs from American Coke? <laughs> I will tell you. That's why we need to build a wall. This is why one of the things that bothers me when I travel to Mexico is their soda. It tastes so different, not only because of the water, but because of the ingredients and, of course, the syrup content and everything that they put together with it. And yet, I have not seemed to have that same problem with my Pepsi products in Mexico. <laughs> Canadian Pepsi. That's, uh, that's really different. <laughs> it's made with maple syrup. Well, poor Kendall Jenner. I, she is still my favorite of all of the Kardashian um, Jenner clan. And I personally, again, I'm so lame that I watched the ad and didn't think it was at all controversial. So that tells you everything you need to know about me. Um, I do believe that this is just another step forward in Pepsi's always constant fight to battle Coca-Cola for headlines, for but more importantly, for sales at the cash register. And this is the, the, the barrier question. Does this impact their sales at all? I don't know that the outrage is so strong that people are going to say, I'm never going to buy Pepsi again. But I also don't know that the ad is so solid that people are going to go out and buy more Pepsi. And ultimately, isn't that the goal? Uh, you'd think, right? Right. Ultimately, that would be the goal. And so as we look forward to more soda controversies and soda wars, um, kind of like what we had probably in the 1980s and 90s, we do have some other things that are riling us up over the uh, last week or so, including some changes in our blessed National Football League. So we're going to talk about that next, coming up. It's the Pepsi Generation. Like a beer, cause it should, cause it's brewed like a beer. Of course it's good. Working out or working late when you're thirsting for a break. Let's be perfectly clear. It's what beer drinkers drink when they're not drinking beer. Oh duels. the brew from Anheuser-Busch, with the alcohol naturally removed for real beer taste and only 70 calories. Anytime, anywhere, it's what beer drinkers drink when they're not drinking beer. Oh duels. We now return to our regularly scheduled program. Now, back to the Jim and Nikki Show. Welcome back to the Jim and Nikki Show. There have been some major changes in the NFL um, since we last talked about it, Jim, and some of it are really affecting my world. And honestly, they're affecting our conference and all the other things that make football great are changing, Jim. They're changing. One of the greatest rivalries in football going back to the 1970s were the Steelers versus the Oakland Raiders. And they're no longer going to be the Oakland Raiders, Jim. They're not even going to be the L.A. Raiders. They're leaving California. Yeah. No, this they're is, going, uh... And they're going to the subtle place in the sky called Las Vegas where there's no betting on uh. football. 
<laughs> or anything that could cause any form of impropriety towards the sport, right? Remember, the National Football League does not support betting on sports or the outcomes of games. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this, Mickey, because yeah, I'm a Jets fan, you're a Steelers fan. Both of them would say the Raiders are not amongst their top rivalries, but they certainly have had some uh, tough, hard-fought games over the years. Would you? So how do you feel about the idea of, you know, within a couple of years, the Steelers playing the Las Vegas Raiders? I think it's really stupid. I mean, it's, it's hard to come up with a, a really good analysis of the situation because when I think of the Raiders, of course I think of our rivalry, you know, which was pretty much before I was born. But there's some joy that comes to me as a Steelers fan every time someone asks John Madden about the Immaculate Reception. <laughs> and he starts to stammer and stutter and still gets pissed off. Well, you know, you got a big guy who goes on to a little guy, and he comes around here, boom. Oh, he, he still thinks it didn't happen. I mean, he still will shake when you ask about it. He didn't even participate <laughs> in the football life about the Immaculate Reception. Well, so, I want, well, as soon as we heard the news, and this had been rumored for a while, but it became official uh, just a short while ago, probably last week, that, yes, the era of the Oakland Raiders is coming to an end again. Uh, and they're leaving the state of California. And I, I thought of one of our longtime listeners, Raider Ute. Uh, and I just happened to go on and check. And uh, he's changed his uh, Twitter name to Mark Davis Delinda Est. Um, Mark Davis yes. is the must owner be of the Raiders. Delinda Del- Est comes from Delinda Est Carthago, meaning Carth- Carthage must be destroyed. Uh, <laughs> thus he's saying Mark Davis must be destroyed. And it's hard. You, you have to sympathize with the guy. I'm not going to say I ever liked the Raiders. I'm not going to say that other than uh, our listeners, I've not ever liked Raider fans. Let's face it. Um, the crowds at Raider games always look like a biker rally slash Matt Max film slash goth bondage convention, right? Mickey, if somebody gave you tickets to go watch the Steelers play in Oakland, would you, would you attend in the black hole? Oh, absolutely. This, oh, really? That, that's right. not even a question. I've seen, the play, I've seen the Steelers play in Baltimore. I can handle Oakland. Uh, um, look, I'm six foot four and 295 pounds. I would need a bodyguard or two. <laughs> I, I want to know, know if the black hole is going to go to Vegas. Or if oh, suddenly instead of you know, them being all dressed, as you mentioned, something out of Mad Max Thunderdome or a biker gang, if they're all going to start showing up looking like showgirls. Uh, I, I'm sure that's a big part of the Raider image, the uniforms, the bad boys, the NFL. Um, but that's because they were in Oakland and L.A. Now yeah, they're going to be in thing. Vegas. They should change their colors to gold and silver. <laughs> there you go. Very, very Trump-esque. The Golden Raiders. Um, so I, I, so as much as I generally think of Raider fans of being... Um, thugs and violent and uh, maniacal and, and, you know, fanatical in the bad way. Um, not the good way as fanatics are, are supposed to be. You know, fan is short for fanatic. Um, I, I do kind of, I felt bad for them. I, I feel like even the worst Raider fans don't deserve this. I, don't, I didn't like seeing it in Cleveland. I didn't like seeing it for uh, Red Pickle and the, and the San Diego Chargers fans. Um, St. Louis Rams fans, you know, they, they, you, you support a team, you, you wear their stuff, you, you rise and fall with them on Sundays or Monday nights, and, and you care. And this is, you know, look, leisure time is valuable, right? You don't have an unlimited supply of it. And you commit at least 16 Sundays uh, during the fall to watching this team, and then one day, psh, it's gone. I would be devastated. Right? I mean, it's, 
Yeah, I look, I was a Browns fan, and the, the phrase was, and then one night, psh, it's gone. So it can't ever be worse than what happened to the Cleveland fans. Oh, I don't know. The Colts left Baltimore in the middle of the night. I guess that precipitated it, didn't it? That's that's why Cleveland left in the middle of the night to, to oh, go no, to Baltimore. It does get worse, Dave, because the Raiders have announced this move, but they're not leaving this season. They're not leaving next season. I don't believe they have a stadium lined up for 2019. And the Las Vegas stadium, they're not certain it's going to be ready until 2020. Okay, you're right. That's worse. <laughs> right? So, I mean, Mark Davis had the balls, pardon my language, but just ask Raider fans to stick around for the next two years. And keep rooting for them, even though, as, as I think it was uh, uh, one of the guys on Mike and Mike said, imagine your spouse says, I'm going to divorce you two years from now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love you anymore. I found somebody better. That person makes me happy and will satisfy me in ways you never But for the next two years, I want you to keep acting like my spouse. Keep being a good you. provider. <laughs> yeah, I, this is one of those decisions by the NFL owners that I will not ever understand. Much like the idea of moving San Diego to L.A., um, California has proven time and time again that it has trouble supporting, I should say Southern California has trouble supporting a team. The Oakland Raiders were one of those teams that got bounced around back and forth, um, but the, the fans kind of moved with it because they were still in the realm, if you will, of that Southern California feel. Now, however, they're moving them to Vegas. They're telling them, we're not going to go right away. We want you guys to still buy tickets, buy our jerseys, and come to our games, but then we're going to leave you anyway. And I just don't see how this works out well in the long term. You know, if Carr hadn't been injured... They might have made it to the Super Bowl. They were a terrific football team this year. This is the really horrible scenario. Yes. Imagine that sometime in the next year or two, they win the Super Bowl. Does Oakland throw them a ticker tape parade? <laughs> oh. I'm right? telling you, this is the ultimate cruelty to the fans. In Oakland. Like some might say it would be storybook. But then how bittersweet would that victory be? Oakland, we have finally brought home the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Yay! All right, we're out of here, folks. Goodbye. All right, off to Las Vegas. Storybook like a Stephen King doll. <laughs> it's horrifying, and, and it's bad for the fans. I don't see how this is good for the players, and I do not see how this is in the long term good for the team. Um, having said that, this is not something that the NFL you – know, they, they have rules in place. Like I said, the owners have to vote on it, and they voted for this. And that leaves you know, except the, the Miami Dolphins owner. So you and I have to say something nice about the Miami Dolphins this week. Uh, how about they're owned by everyone? <laughs> and that's probably why they couldn't vote yes or no. <laughs> that's true. Actually, it's Green Bay Packers. Uh, everybody who owns like one share of the Green Bay Packers was like, well, I voted no, but it didn't really count. You can, I also kind of wonder. So let's, let's imagine when the Las Vegas Raiders are in place. Some people very much agreed with this assessment. Some people vehemently disagreed. But let's, let's take... 45 to 52, I guess once you throw in the, the injured reserve and all that stuff, young men, all anywhere in their like some 20 to let's say 35 years old or so, some single, some married, all of whom making the league minimum of like a half million dollars a year or more. Uh, let's take all of them, let's have them playing half the year and then having effectively half the year them, themselves. And let's put them in Las Vegas and see what happens. <laughs> You know, Sin City, land of gambling, land of hookers, land of uh, every. What could you go know, wrong, Jim? Right, I mean, like, I really am looking at that. And, and some people said, oh, you know, you can gamble anywhere. Players can get in trouble anywhere. Players have gotten in trouble in many cities beyond Las Vegas. 
But am I crazy, Mickey, for thinking that this is, you know, that within a couple of years, the NFL could look at, could have, you know, the, the odds of a player betting either on another game or betting on their own games just seems a lot more likely once you've got one team permanently residing in Las Vegas year-round. Am I crazy? I, I, I don't know that it necessarily makes it any more likely. I just think that it, it definitely removes the ability for the NFL to say that they're above any impropriety. Hmm. They have actually put some they, – they've decided to invest in the city of Las Vegas. They've decided to put a team there. Um, it's not as though we haven't had football games in Las Vegas before because we have. It's just that the idea of actually putting a permanent home there is something that is almost unfathomable, you know, 10 years ago. Then again, the idea of Tony Romo – um, calling a game sitting beside Jim Nance was not something that I thought was going to be plausible until a couple days ago either. I was really hoping that uh, Tony Romo was going to sign with Fox Sports. So then we could team him up with Troy Aikman. And uh, at some point, I, I could see Tony Romo saying in the box, look, you know, sometimes people forget what you did for a franchise. <laughs> and there's some new kid who comes along. Everybody just starts talking about him like he's the greatest thing ever. And all of a sudden, you're out like yesterday's news, and everybody forgets what you did for that team and what that star on the side of your helmet means. And Troy Eggman would say, yeah, what's that feel like? <laughs> well, and, and, you know, as many people have mentioned, now Tony Romo will have the opportunity to be at a Super Bowl. CBS will be carrying it. <laughs> and the other part of it that I found really fascinating is apparently he also is getting to be part of the golf package. Tony Romo so, is a very, very good golfer. Well, thank you, Dave. I, I I did not realize that until I read some on it this week. But yes, apparently he's very much into golf. And again, something that he found very attractive about the CBS package that they gave him was not only that he would be calling and covering the NFL games, but that he would also be covering and calling the golf games. And so playing in all the pro-ams, too, I'm sure. And playing at the pro-ams. But my now question is, you know, how does he take that quarterback voice and tone it down for golf? <laughs> right. He's setting up. <laughs> He's got a four-foot putt for birdie, and it's in. They'll <laughs> be hearing him across the, the whole front nine. <laughs> I want to backtrack for a second on the uh, uh, on the gambling thing because I, I, I first of all, do you gamble on on any sports events? No. Me neither. Do you do it out of principle, being cheap, uh, or the idea you don't want to bet you, if, if you Put yourself in that circumstance, which you bet on a team, but they're playing the Steelers, then you're rooting for your team and you could lose money or that kind of situation? I am not a gambler by nature. I don't gamble on anything. I don't bet on anything. Um, so part of it probably is somewhere in my head superstition. Uh, it's just not something I enjoy. Me, I'm, uh, I'm too myself. intrinsically lazy to gamble because it takes a little bit of learning and studying about the situation, and I'm just not willing to do that. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I, I've entered NCAA tournament pools and things like that. I'm not a big gambler. I'm also not a, a, um, uh, a restrictionist. I, I recognize this is always going to happen. People are going to bet a couple, you know, bet a couple of bucks on a game. That's fine. But I also feel like there's, there, you probably it's really not a good idea for the league to ever kind of encourage gambling on sports. I think there's just too much temptation. You don't want to have a Pete Rose type situation. Um, and I just kind of feel like putting a team in Las Vegas, you know, either, either the league is, look, you kind of have to decide whether you're okay with gambling on your games or not if you're a league. 
And if you're not okay with it, then you can't put a team in Las Vegas. And if you are, I don't know. It just seems like. But hasn't the NFL door. already said they're really okay with gambling on our on our league, just in the ways that we control when they put together fantasy football? I was about to say, deep down, <laughs> their real objection is, well, wait a second. If there's going to be gambling on our games, we want to cut. Right. <laughs> That's the real objection. A new way for us to be angry at uh, Commissioner Goodell. Still waiting for the team to be moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, so they can go to church with the Falwell family every weekend. And, and one of the greatest stories I probably read this week, and I'll see if I can grab that and put it up online, was a complaint being made by some of the players that Goodell might be making too much money. I'm like, you think? <laughs> well, with such wonderful performances he's putting in. Ugh, Mickey, I tell you, some days the NFL is like a bad movie that for some reason is remarkably popular. But, you know, I think we all have those kinds of movies, and we'll be talking about those right after this. I could have used a little more cowbell. Hey, here's a great place to visit if you must do some driving. Your independent Texaco region. Chocolate lovers, watch out for new Choco Bliss. Oh, what a sweet sensation. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And, Mickey, we all have some movie that we hate we look at it, we see it an unbelievable disaster on celluloid, something that uh, uh, never should have seen the light of day. But for some reason, other people love them. The good folks at Entertainment Weekly decided to gather the, 23rd, the 23 worst movies that made the most money. Um, they decided to compare the Rotten Tomatoes score, the, what the critics said, and then the worldwide gross. And it will probably not surprise you, Mickey, number one, Fifty Shades Darker. The only thing that surprised me about that was that the original was not included. Yeah, I, I know this by three hundred seventy-eight million dollars as of this uh, uh, this report, which is a lot. I, I'm not see some of them because the other thing is like, there are lots of movies that are like terrible, but nobody goes to see them. Everybody can kind of tell. Um, I was most surprised in this number two, Staying Alive, back in 1983, which apparently nobody liked. Everybody thought it was terrible. <clears throat> Uh, but it made sixty-four million dollars. Now, Mickey, when you say when you hear "staying alive," what do you think of? John Travolta. You know. You can tell by the way I move my exactly. walk. You, the, the, the openings, you know, of him walking, following him down the street, the music, and him walking, right? So, I mean, even that, I seem to recall, like when you know, they do like the Oscar montages of great films, that pops up in there. So I, I'm really surprised. But that's from Saturday Night Fever. Oh, is that what I think? Okay, is that? All right. So and stay, see, here's what I found oh, with a lot they, of these okay. movies is what we're really looking at are what people considered sequels that didn't need to be made. Mm. Because um, one, of the, one of the first names that popped up as a sequel that I thought was really funny and interesting and obviously horribly bad, so appropriate for this, was Speed 2. Yeah. And if you take a look, um, you've got some sequels in here. You've got some remakes. Point Blank. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Point Break. Yeah. The remake was on here, as was Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2. Let's take now, I didn't go see Mall Cop 1. <laughs> but apparently, you know, the people who made this list thought that the originals were worth making, maybe not the sequels. And so you see Fifty Shades Darker, you see Staying Alive, you see the, the Mall Cop movie, too. Um, you're seeing, obviously, as I mentioned, Speed. But one of these movies on the list, I, I must put my foot down, and that is Cocktail. Ah. 
I demand to know why. You have the floor. Defend cocktail. Well, I just want to know why, as a very young girl, when Cocktail came out, it was a hot movie to me. I loved that movie. I loved Tom Cruise at that time. When he stood on the bar and he did shots and he made rhymes, I was happy. That was a great movie. And yes, it was cheesy as all get out, but it didn't matter. Because it was an awesome movie. And so I, I demand an explanation as to why Cocktail was on this list. I, I was about to say, most people, if, whatever you think of Cocktail, everybody at one point or another has been, man, I wish I could flip bottles like that. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, it makes making a, lo- a, a mixed drink look like it belongs in the Olympics, right? America, it's just if you want to get loaded, why don't you just order a shot? Yeah. And I'm sure every single bartender in the country like, tried to do that for about a month. And after like a half dozen broken bottles, like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. So. Well, now there are a great many of what they call the artisanal bartenders who oh, to yeah. that style, uh, the cocktail style of, of making. And they actually have classes where they can teach you how to twill your bottles, et cetera. And they even have bartender competitions. Yeah. I think the Kokomo song is what made that movie great. I look. The bottom line is it was a great movie. It invented the idea of who invented the flugelbinder. Ha! All right. Do you remember that- the discussion? Because the, the problem with Cocktail, for those looking, I mean, if you watch it now, I'm sure it's even a thousand times worse. But when you're watching it at the time, one, hot Tom Cruise, hot Elizabeth Shue. Um, hot you know, Brian Elizabeth- Brown. Right. No, but okay. <laughs> all the, all, you know, all We're the Australians, hot- right? That's right, mate. Making sure represent carry on all the hot sex scenes on the beach in the tropical locations but the bottom line is that brian our car our our, our our bartender actually just wants to make money and it's all about money and, and it's so 80s in that sense because of course you know he just thinks she's some girl and he wants to you know hook the big fish and meanwhile she ends up being like super rich so that was also a kind of a, a moral theme of the story as well um, I was going to say the uh, look. There, there was a streak there where Tom Cruise could do nothing wrong, and if it, the, the movie had really just been two hours of him being a bartender and charming the ladies at the bar, people would have happily watched it. You know, uh, um, yeah. I want to go back though because you look at you know like I, I was kind of pleased to see Point Break remake on this one. Uh, this came out in 2015. I believe we briefly discussed this at the time, but I remember thinking. You go back and you look at the either 1990, 1991 original Point Break. There is like a joyous cheesiness to this whole to the whole thing. There's just such over the top performances by. I mean, this is really where Keanu became got his resting Keanu face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and Patrick Swayze, man, I oh, you know, it's God, a classic role for him. God rest his soul. I imagine, I, you know, I, I don't know if his health problems were caused by all the scenery he chewed. <laughs> He must have had some sort of digestive problems. Um, uh, Gary Busey, maybe his last sane role, right? I mean, you just go down the list. This was kind of a bunch of guys in a fairly ridiculous, they're like surfer bank robbers who dress up as president. You know, like it's a ludicrous concept, but everybody just dives into it and sells it. And the Point Break remake just had none of it. Right? The they first just, you know, thing to me about the Point Break remake was that it actually grossed 133 million worldwide? They went from surfers to ex sports people. They they embraced a, a expanded version of the twenty something generation of athletics. That's why that's why it did so well. And having watched it on cable a couple uh, weeks ago, 
Uh, uh, granted to them, beautiful scenery. Fantas- you know, for, if, if this had just been an X Games exposition, <laughs> it was all very well done. Uh, but the problem was, is that again, what made Point Break wasn't really the. St- uh, okay, some might argue the stunts. Keanu jumps out of a, a, a plane without a parachute and stuff like that. But deep down, I think it was that joyous, cheesy attitude that when you try to update it with a grim and gritty uh, uh, reality of, of 2015, I just don't think people are going to buy into it. So um, explain to me then. Okay. Why, uh, while they're recasting now for the 007 roles on Bond, mm. that for some reason Daniel Craig is being invited back again instead of Loki, or yeah. as everyone else knows him, Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> well, let's face it. We all know he's really the Norse god of mischief. Um, so, yeah, so here's you – know, first of all, Daniel Craig apparently did not enjoy making Spectre and did not exactly hide it in any of the promotional interviews – uh, it was the single most honest performance I'd seen since Richard Dreyfus was, you know, asked about some film he made, and he said, "Yeah, I just made that movie so I could have enough money to buy a boat." <laughs> <laughs> and the interviewer chuckled and said, "So, can I talk to you about the movie?" He's like, "I'd really rather talk to you about the boat. Let me tell you about that, how good this boat is." <laughs> well, yes, because uh, I'm quoting him now from an uh, from an article in Page Six. Uh, it says here that after he was finished with filming Spectre, um, and they apparently asked if he'd be back to finish yet another James Bond movie, he said, quote, I'd rather slash my wrists. I'm over it at the moment. <laughs> and when asked whether who should take over the role, he added, look, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I think uh, Daniel Craig was doing a tricky negotiation ploy. I think he was saying how much he hated it so they'd offer him twice as much for the next one. Or maybe they got a better script. I, I just, I, th- I, I don't. You don't hear a lot of people raving about the Daniel Craig Bond movies anymore. I feel like they kind of got worse as they went on. Um, I, I, you, I was going to say I've never seen a, a, a star of a major and really the face of a franchise sound so much like a Seattle Seahawks running back doing these interviews and saying, <laughs> look, I'm just going to make a picture I don't define. You know, um, <laughs> if you you know why I'm here. It, it, you got to wonder how good a movie you're going to have if you have an actor who just apparently holds the entire film series in contempt. Um, and Hiddleston certainly would be interesting. We raved last year about The Night Manager and how much he seemed to be a good fit for that well-crafted espionage tale. Maybe he um, got swifted. There we go, yeah. Well, then there's that. Um, could you imagine Taylor Swift as a Bond girl? Now you're just like, giving them ideas, Jim. Right Shut now, I mean, you could just imagine Bond world and Taylor Swift world exploding. Um, I, I do kind of wonder, though, if he's just so well known as Loki, whether you know, if you're if you're that identified with a villainous role, um, whether some of us will watch it and say like, "Nah, it's not really Bond; it's Loki." My yeah, problem with the guy is he's like five foot six on his head, and all of the like. There's there's all of the costuming and everything that goes into Loki. I think it allows Tom Hiddleston to move a little more easily from role to role than than pe- than others that have been typecast in a specific role. Daniel Craig at least was five ten. Tom Hiddleston's like five six, five seven. He's a tiny little guy. Well, that's they're all tiny in Hollywood anymore. That, that, yeah, they're they're Isn't all Tom Cruise little. like five like four eight or something. <laughs> he, he's literally like five three or something. He's five so. seven, and Stallone is five eight, and that's the normal now for a lead male. It used to be. John Wayne, you know, you used to have six foot four leading males. Now a six foot four guy stands out so much they won't even cast him. Yeah, that w- that won't work with our set. 
We're going to need you to scale it down a little. <laughs> Sorry, I'm six foot four and I'm going to stay that way. <laughs> Horizontal or vertical? <laughs> well, and again, I, I am not someone who is a huge fan of Bond f- films in general. So I don't necessarily understand why we need to keep remaking them. You know, recently, actually, in the series, they added, uh, I believe it's Rafe Fines. It's not, you know, the, <clears throat> never mind, they call him Ralph. But, you know, yeah, Rafe the new Fiennes M. plays the new, the new boss. Maybe when kind of, the irony is he might be able to pull it off. Like, if, if the idea is that Bond is supposed to have this vaguely sinister um, vibe to him, you know, the, the ultimate dangerous man, you know, heroic, but also kind of this, you know, devilish edge to him maybe he could be uh you know but again I, I'm, I'm again I'm, I'm okay with an older bond clearly every time they do these sorts of things they want him to be younger and you know they'll probably Look, get um, the only bond that matters probably get to Daniel me, Radcliffe. the only bond that matters to me as you well know is Sean ah! Connery <laughs> everyone's they're not worth a carry in my jockstrap <laughs> that is correct <laughs> And Connery was pretty mean, especially to women. I look at those old movies, and Connery was just rude. Well, he is kind of a rapscallion. Yes. Like, that's the whole idea. Mm-hmm. And when the books were written, then that's part of it, too. Yeah, if I were that, I'd smack you across the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely party. I Pity rude. I wasn't invited. <laughs> this think is... I'm rude? This is how I treat men. Imagine how I treat women. You, <laughs> you know, surprisingly, we talk about Sean Connery. None of the remakes of... Um, of the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies ended up on this list, which is kind of surprising considering all the money that they raked in and all the complaints that they received as well. You know, Crystal Skull could have deserved it. Yeah. Man. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have objected to that one. I'm saying uh, that, one, that one could have been on the list. But again, we as Americans like things the way we like them, whether that's reality or not. And we're going to talk a little bit about living in the real world versus living in the world that we wish we lived in next. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You jack wagon! Balls of Fury. Flight 209er, clear for Vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Our radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh? Roger, over. What? Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. We are here living in reality. However... There's a lot of things as Americans, as people in general, Jim, I think that a lot of times we see things and we try to oversimplify problems. We try to um, bring them into a realm that maybe we can understand. Um, maybe the harsh realities of the world aren't something that everyone can cope with. And over the last few weeks, we've had a lot of different discussions coming up about um, culture and sharing of that culture and appropriation. Of that culture, if you will. But sometimes we go a little far and completely missing the point. And unfortunately, I think that's what Miss Alicia Keys has done with one of her more recent social media shares um, of her. In yeah. A, I, I don't know what else to call it, but a sexy burka. Yeah. So here, so this was on uh, March 28th. <clears throat> um, Alicia Keys, well-known performer, uh, puts out a tweet and it has this little kind of mantra here. Our strength is in our differences. Our power is in our diversity. We are so beautiful, all of us. When we see each other, we see ourselves. Now, by itself, this sounds like a Hallmark card, but fine, go ahead. Yes, our strength is in our differences. Hooray for everybody being different in diversity, yada, yada, yada. But then the image she chooses to go with it is a woman wearing a niqab, uh, a head, which is not just the, the head cover. It's pretty much the uh, full head, just eye slit, um, but the and, and full robes, 
But the opening is there, and it's a woman who apparently is a ballerina. She's got her ballerina legs sticking out uh, in a large slit that goes up pretty high on the niqab. Um, now, here, you know, as many people have pointed out, that in almost any country in, of the Muslim world in which women are required to wear a hijab, showing your leg in such a manner would probably result in severe punishment. Um, meaning that I don't know where this Muslim ballerina exists. I don't know where this photo came from. But it's not Saudi Arabia. It's not, or if it was taken in Saudi Arabia, this picture could only be shown to women. It would not be shown to men uh, because they would be deemed inappropriate. And um, let's take it larger. The idea of diversity, the idea of beauty in diversity is an un-Islamic idea that they do not subscribe to in those countries. They want everybody to be the same. The diversity appeal is from here, but not from there. Well, this is the true appropriation of culture in that we are trying to force our ideas and what we see as Americans as being beautiful and diverse on other countries. And I don't think that's necessarily respectful either. Sorry, Alicia Keys. Um, But I don't feel like you're being respectful of true Muslim women by putting something out there that if they had actually worn that could end up with them being stoned to death in the middle of the street. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, keep in mind the same people who praised this particular post are the people who complained endlessly about Selena Gomez showing her ankle. Well, let's observe, by the way. As Alicia Keys took the tweet down. Uh, before it got down, it was at least 4,280 likes. So clearly quite a few folks liked it. Here is my – we can argue about Islam. That's not really what this podcast is traditionally about. But here, here's where we do like picking on celebrities who step in it, and I think this, uh, <laughs> this qualifies because here's the thing. We can argue about – Islam as it is. We can argue about the theology of it, the way it's practiced, things we agree with, things we disagree with. In this image she chose to kind of say, hey, we're all alike each other. She's choosing to depict an Islam that doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't really a country in which you are required to cover your face, but it's perfectly okay to show off your legs. Um, I, I spent two years in Turkey. It was a country, ironically, that bans the headscarf. Turkey, at least for up until recently, had this extremely strong secular legal tradition. Uh, you couldn't wear a headscarf in a government building. Um, it's not quite what it used to be. But the, the women there, you know, just because they didn't have that rule, the women there generally dressed pretty darn conservatively. Well, um, and the word you're looking for is modesty. Yes, there because you go. the number one concern with the coverage, whether it be, um, you know, there are women in the United States who choose not to wear pants. They choose to wear long skirts. They choose to not show cleavage because they want to be modest, because they want to cover their bodies so that they are not, you know, being disrespectful to God, but because there are people who cover their heads. These are all things that make sense. What yeah. does not make sense is to try to, again, culturally appropriate all of that there is with this religion and with this tradition and try to Americanize it to a point where it's somehow very hip hop. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's attempting to create an image of the Muslim faith that, as we said, you know, the segment the se- segment is about re- fantasy versus reality or uh, an imagined world instead of the world as it is. Probably something that you know, like Pepsi ad makers should keep in mind. Um, is this I like you you can you can take this image, but it's no more an accurate representation of what this community and this culture is than say getting a supermodel to dress up as a nun, right? <laughs> That's not really what Catholicism is about. This isn't really what the Muslim faith is about, and it doesn't really do us any good to pretend that it is. We cannot 
invent an imaginary um, sexier Islam <laughs> to to replace the uh, the Islam that really exists and that a lot of Westerners have a bunch of problems with. And so, um, and it's so not the, doing any favors for young people to try to teach them through the culture that that yeah. is the way Islam is. They're going to be shocked to discover the real one. Well, and even if they never come face to face with the real Islam, I think it's important to be respectful of the people who practice it and understand that what she's saying, just quite frankly, is not true. Whether or not Alicia Keys, you know, intended it this way, there's kind of this, you know, certainly there, there's a subtext of, hey, look, Muslims are cool and sexy, too. And I know, for, you know, for all Muslims listening, yes, we do think you're cool and sexy, um, but we don't necessarily think that... Uh, this picture depicts it, and it's not really – look, I don't know if world religious faiths have to be cool and sexy. Part of the appeal is that they're not following the trends. Part of the I mean, appeal we, is you that know, they're eternal, right? They're not, uh, des- they're not designed to be on the cover of a fashion magazine. When you see a picture of a nun in her full habit, you're not supposed to be aroused. <laughs> That's you, what? Wait, wait. Do that again slower. What are you saying now? Sorry, i got to write this down. i got to write this down. Go on. Well, <laughs> I'm just going to say, don't, what? don't do a Google image search because um, my guess is you'll probably find something. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, and here's the, and so it's it's one of those things where like as much and look, you could always say, ah, look, you know, this is where a lot of people would say, ah, shut up and sing. You know, I think there was some pundit who had a book by that title. Yes. Look, I'm not saying Alicia Keys isn't allowed to offer her thoughts or offer her own viewpoints and try to, you know, I'm, I'm sure in this tweet she thought she was trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd say, God bless her, no pun intended. Um, but there's kind of a sense of like, but you don't, if you're trying to make the world a better place, you kind of have to see it as it is. Right? And you have you- to be understanding of that as it is. Instead of trying to force it and form it into something that it is not in order to make it more palatable. Yeah, and that, exactly. It was like everything people are tearing their hair out about the uh, the Pepsi ad is right here and present in this tweet. And it's probably one of the reasons I think we, thought, we, we felt like we, we really need to do This came out and I missed the controversy. And I really wanted to weigh in and say – but here's the other thing. Doesn't it maybe say something that the only way that um, – or, or certainly that, that a way to depict something as cool and modern and um, uh, worthy of celebration – is to show a little leg, <laughs> right? I mean, there's kind of this, this subtly like, you know, oh, look, you, you might not, you know, be in, you, this, this picture may not be appealing to you with the face covered. You certainly can't, you know, you can't see something. Um, we have in the United States a, a periodic uh, controversies about whether people should be allowed to wear the veil in a bank, in your driver's license photo, things like that. Not being able to see someone's face generally implies that in, in Western societies, that either that person is up to no good or that it's Halloween. Right? We're, we're, you know, for obvious reasons, we are not comfortable with not being able to see somebody's face, and we, that automatically arouses suspicion. As now, a woman, yeah? I have to say this. Like, there's no way I can go through this conversation and not just make this 100% clear. As a woman wearing the full burqa from head to toe and covering oneself and not being allowed to speak to men and not being allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia and not being allowed to do other things is not equality. It's not sexy. And there's no way, whether Alicia Keys tweets about it or not, that that changes. Yeah, it, it really is kind of a um, one of the clumsier it's insulting. moments. 
And, and you know, she she with you know she deleted the tweet. I don't think we've seen any statement from Alicia Keys since then. I, I don't know whether like I want her to how to explain it more or whether it's good for her to just kind of you know. I also have to point out in terms of no makeup on what you were saying, Jim, about uh, people with their faces covered being up to no good. I have to point out over the last fifteen years there have been numerous examples of terrorists and other criminals dressing like Islamic women and trying to get through airport security, trying to generally make their escape from crime scenes and keep from getting caught. And that is a a legitimate concern, not just in terrorism, but in general crime. Anywhere there is a full burqa, there is the chance for a man to get in one and get away with something. In countries where you have very serious crime problems, thinking of Mexico, some parts of Central America, the police have to operate with masks because otherwise the fear is that their, uh, their identities will be discovered and their families will be targeted for retribution. Yep. The logic of that all makes, makes perfect sense. On the other hand, the difference between seeing police showing up at your door with guns or seeing masked men showing up at your door with guns. You know, I, I, we, uh, during the whole height of the, the Ferguson controversy, we kind of had this, this chewing over the sense of has the militarization of police forces gone too far? And when you see a police officer in the full getup uh, and, and wearing kind of the ski mask sort of thing and the black helmet and the goggles and all that kind of stuff, look, that you know, one, I'm, I'm sure it's deliberate to intimidate anybody who might be in, inclined to take a shot at a cop. On the other hand, I look at that and I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. This is, you know, I, I really feel like it's, it's deeply conditioned almost into our DNA. That if we can't, like, you know, every, every superhero and supervillain wears a mask, right? There's, there's always this, like, mystery to someone wearing a mask. Tribal identities are all about, uh, you know, like, masks have very powerful significance. There's a lot of symbolism just, behind it that has meaning. Yep. So, we're, there's, in other words, not seeing somebody's face means a lot in our society, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons we're having, you know, there's, there's tensions when people feel, no, no, because of my religious faith, I can't show you my face. Now, look. This doesn't mean, you know, somebody in the coffee shop you're in comes in in a, a full uh, a veiled face. Hey, you know what? Don't give them any grief. You know, they're, they're obeying the law. Uh, we have our own traditions and our own cultures, brides wearing veils and things like that. But uh, it really does kind of feel like this is a this, – this is one of those things where, like, there's a Hallmark card approach <laughs> – this mm-hmm. issue that's a little more complicated than uh, well, the than same people who the same people who would argue that Pepsi had sanitized the entire you know protest movement yeah. would be praising Alicia Keys yep. for sanitizing the burqa and all that it entails. Yeah. No question. Look, it's a it's a time for uh, renewal and new chances, second chances, and uh, and that stuff. So. Uh, we will turn our we'll, we'll we'll cut Alicia Keys some slack. We'll just expect better of her in the future, and we'll turn our attention towards Easter right after this. See, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend: those with loaded guns, and those who dig. Taking Mr. Herman. Mr. Herman, you have a telephone call at the front desk. <laughs> Sunday night, two thousand pounds of raging terror stalking its prey by night. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. We will not have a fresh show next week. Next week is uh, the lead-up to Easter. I will be on vacation. Mickey, I don't know if you have any plans. I, I do know... I, do, I have a wedding call- coming up, a millennial oh, wedding right. on a Thursday. As we prepare for Easter, Mickey, you called my attention to something I did not know. Apparently, there is a genuine right way to eat a chocolate bunny on Easter. 
Yes, I did not know this either. I mean, I, I guess if you think about it, there's a right and wrong way to do everything. But when you pull out that Easter bunny, and it better be a hollow one or you're going to break a tooth. Mm. But you pull out your Easter bunny and it's got those big ears and that big fluffy tail. Which do you bite first? I guess the ears, but it's been years and years and years since I've had one. Well, that waxy chocolate that you loved as a child, when you unwrapped that foil, you almost always went for the ear, right? But what if yeah. you didn't? What does that say about you if you don't? <laughs> <laughs> then you're looking for a lucky rabbit's foot that's made of chocolate. Are you eating uh, the foot or are you eating the tail first? <laughs> I always bit the face off first. I guess that says something <laughs> about me. The Jeffrey Dahmer of Easter. <laughs> well, Australia had trouble with rabbits, right? So they, they overbred <laughs> right. everything. So I'm not surprised Dave would have some. Two blasted really... many millions of those things down in Australia. We just killed them all and ate them. <laughs> I'm also, here's the thing. This, is, this may have been in a, a whole full segment on its own. Mickey, the, the chocolate Easter bunnies, kind of overrated. We all know there's like a whole cult around peeps. I certainly like the uh, pastel-colored M&M's. A giant chunk of chocolate that big is just not easy to eat or, or particularly enjoyable in that form. Am I, am I crazy? No, and this is why I said the, the most important thing is that it has to be a hollow bunny or you're going to chip a tooth. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you have one of those solid chocolate bunnies, you're on your own. You better get a knife. Now, for me, I'm a Gardner's candy girl when it comes to Easter. Gardner's the candy out of um, Pennsylvania. And it is by far one of the best milk chocolates that you're going to get in the States. And they used to have these Gardner eggs. They still do. I can't get them here unless I order them online. But they have Gardner Easter eggs and they had the Gardner nut egg with cashews in it. And I remember just taking the knife and slicing it through the chocolate and watching it drizzle off the side. And, like, that was the best moment of Easter for me. I didn't care if there was any other candy in my basket as long as there was a nut egg from Gardner's. And how do they compare to the Cadbury cream egg, which I also thought was kind of overrated as a... Now, Cadbury cream eggs, my little sister, who is the one getting married, she loved those growing up. Now, to me, they were like taking a spoonful of sugar and mixing it in water and then just chugging it like a shot. Mm. Because the inside of the egg is basically just some kind of sugary goo. Yeah. And the concept is cool. Like, don't get me wrong. But the taste is, well, heinous. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, look, also, here's the thing. Maybe some of these candies are fine. I don't know about you, Mickey. I've always kind of wondered about the candy that doesn't sell one Easter. Mm. Some of it gets marked down and sold the day after Easter. (laughs) Some of it goes up on a shelf in the back somewhere. For a year. And then I always used to think about those little chocolate bunnies that were filled with marshmallow. (laughs) Mm. They were so nasty. Peeps will last after the nuclear holocaust. <laughs> Peeps will evolve and have a full functioning civilization. And the cockroaches um, that survived the holocaust will be eating the peeps. Yeah. <laughs> if but, you love your family, Jim, what I would recommend to you is to go online to gardeners.com um, and find what they have called these peanut butter meltaway eggs. And they are heaven in a bite. Instead of, you know, your cheap chocolate and peanut butter slapped together as we've seen done in so many combinations these people have created something that is a masterpiece do you need a moment mickey are you okay (laughs) i i I may need a moment because i haven't ordered mine yet oh and again here we are i'm getting the rap 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 signal from dave so i want to let you guys know that we have come to the end of another hour 
Thank you so much for being with us this week. We do wish you guys a very happy and blessed Easter, a blessed Passover as well. And um, we do look forward to having you guys with us next week, even though Dave is going to be running some of our best of. You can always find any of our shows at soundcloud.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. Become a fan of us on Facebook. We're getting better about posting things over there at facebook.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. Find us on Twitter at Jim and Mickey. I'm at Bias Girl and he's at Jim Garrity. And, uh, of course, our one and only Dave Perkins. You can find him on Twitter at, at Big Dave P. I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity. And you've been listening to the one, the only, Jim and Mickey Show. Well, I guess that makes our naughty parts tingle. Worst case scenario. Back up.